0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Miss the show, no problem. On point and on the podcast, who are these protesters that Justin Trudeau calls mobs? We'll talk about some new polling that shows they're people from all political stripes right across this country, and they are people who are fed up with the political elite and they are turning to the one party they see as a place to call home. We will talk about that. And in the middle of the pandemic, in a way four, why are we not getting all those health updates that we got every single day for 18 months? Is this political? Oh, you bet it is. And apparently, um, why is no one talking about Afghanistan? How is it that this humanitarian crisis fell right off the radar in this election? And why aren't we talking about foreign policy? Some of the biggest issues facing this country. That and more. Let's get talking. I'll
2: tip my head to the new Constitution. Take a fire for the new revolution. Smile and breathe at the change all around. Pick up my guitar and play. Just like yesterday. Then I'll get on my
0: knees and pray. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on
2: Global News Radio. We do Let me be very clear and state the obvious first and foremost. It is absolutely unacceptable that people be throwing things and endangering others at a political rally. There were volunteers and supporters. There are police officers there to keep everyone safe. There were journalists such as yourselves doing a really important job informing Canadians of what's going on in this election and some of the tensions that are out there. Nobody should be doing their jobs under the threat or uh, or, or uh, under the threats of violence or acts that put them in danger. That's not how we do things in Canada. And quite frankly, as I continue to campaign, I am inspired by those people who continue to do the right thing in the face of anti-vaxxer mobs who are not respecting the basic science and the basic decency that Canadians have rightly come to expect from each other. Well, Justin Trudeau somehow
1: made himself the victim of a mob of his own creation. Hello there, Alex Pierson with you back on this Wednesday, September 8th. Did you miss me? I'm sure some did. Uh, Others, maybe not so much. But yes, I'm back. Uh, Much-needed break, albeit very tired, Uh, like you, kept awake probably most of the night by Mother Nature. I don't remember, I don't know about you, but I don't remember a time where we had uh, like just a series of non-stop storms. I I just don't remember. It It was really cool. I do love a good storm. I know that a lot of uh, folks are dealing with a lot of destruction and cleaning up today, but nonetheless, um, it was quite a night. I think a lot of people are dragging their butts today. So here I have been spending the last couple of weeks doing all the back-to-school stuff, catching my breath, and of course, I've been watching this election from the sidelines, generally yelling at the radio in frustration, because it's just this needless gong show. You know, I talk about politics. I talk about it all the time. I still do not know what this election is about. Three weeks in, no clue. And so here we are on the eve where we're heading into the second of four leaders' debates. And a lot of people will just be tuning in. And this time around, there are three French debates and only one English debate. I mean, does that really actually serve this country? No, it does not. There should be another English debate at the very least. It's crazy that there's not... And um, a lot of big topics that should be discussed are not even, not even a, a whisper. And a lot of people, you know, they don't know what's on offer. A lot of people don't even know an election's coming. And many, I would think, just don't care. They got bigger worries on their plate, like getting the kids back to school. you in the GTA, that starts tomorrow. Is school going to stay open? I'm going back to work. Are the cases, what's going on with the cases? Remember when we had every single day we would have a press conference with this urgency from Dr. Tam about, well, you gotta lock down, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. Where is she? We haven't had one update since this election started. Not one. And last I checked, public health actually is supposed to serve the public. But I do find it odd that all of a sudden, in a fourth wave where we're told cases will go up to 15,000 a day across Canada, we haven't had these daily press conferences. No, Harry, scary, the sky is falling. So, if you ever wonder why people stop to trust those in charge, it's political crap like that. And so, tonight, French debate, tomorrow's the English debate, which we will run. But I will bet now that a lot of people come away with it, still without a clue. It's like, why are we voting on September 20th? Why? I know what this is about, you know what this is about. Talk listeners are generally engaged. I mean, this is about a power grab. And since Trudeau can't run on his record, he's now running on this, you know, all these predictable wedge issues. Abortion, vaccines, Stephen Harper, gun control. All these weaponized attacks that have revealed a desperation, which is not a good look for a government that has been very cocky and claiming to be all sunny ways. And yet, here they are acting pretty shady. Because all we get day in, day out, day in, day out are these wedge issues that will not in any way serve the average Canadian. I mean, why are we talking about vaccine passports every single day? I am so sick of this issue. And if it were so important to Trudeau, he had months to do something at the federal level. Months! And it's only an issue now in the election, right? I mean, why aren't we talking about the fall of Afghanistan? It's a big story. It's not going away. It got, like, what, one day, two days coverage? The two Michaels? Eh. Cost of living? Rising inflation? Eh. I mean, there are so many things we should be talking about, and all we talk about are vaccine passports, which is purely political. And Trudeau should be called on this. He should be called on using vaccines as a weapon to score political points. Because it's going to create, and it is creating, a lot of collateral damage that's going to last way past this election. You know, name calling the protesters as anti vax mobs, all that does is drive the hesitant further away, and it's not even accurate. And let me be clear before the anti vaxxers start, you know, sending me their awful, hideous messages I got zero time for you. I just don't. And I'm fully vaccinated. But I do understand why a lot of people still have reservations. I do understand that, and I'm not going to shame them for that. And when you look at the data and break down, we're not talking small numbers. Four and a half million Canadians still have not gotten a shot. That's a lot of people. And we've seen the polls. A majority of Canadians agreed to getting vaccinated, but... New polling by uh, Maru Blue reveals 31% of Canadians actually disagree with forcing these vaccine passports. Another 16% strongly disagree. So what, 46%? Is that my math? 47? Uh, those are big numbers of Canadians that Trudeau is alienating on a daily basis to get himself elected. And sure, some voters will bite and, you know, The media will run with this main narrative. But these people are still going to exist after the election. Then what happens? I mean, how do you build bridges with millions of people who you've now demonized? Because despite the headlines that say that all these protesters are anti-vaxxers, they're not. They're Canadians from all political stripes. They're Canadians who are angry. Many just don't trust politicians anymore. They feel like they don't have a voice in this country, and in this election, they have become Trudeau's punching bag, and he is all too happy to fuel their anger using the same divisive U.S. style rhetoric. You know where he wags his finger, only to turn around and play victim because, well, he—that's the only card he's got left to play in what has been just a disaster of a campaign, and no. That does not mean I support a lot of the games I've seen played. Protesting is one thing. Throwing pebbles or rocks, spitting on reporters, harassing healthcare workers, it, it is completely unacceptable. And all this is going to do is secure another term for Trudeau, which is why he'll continue to taunt them. Because if, if he were actually concerned about the increased violence, he could actually stop holding campaign appearances within of the crowds, right? He could do that. He won't. I mean, Aaron O'Toole has had no issue reaching voters online. And so Trudeau's not changing the strategy. He kind of tells you, hey, it's working. It's working for him. So he's going to keep trying to get the victim, victim vote, even if it comes at this country's cost. Because the people Trudeau calls a mob, they're not. Some are idiots, absolutely. But a lot of these people, you know, are bonded by anger, distrust, exhaustion, but they're really sick of being talked down to. And so here we are, 12 days to the vote, and we're starting to see some really interesting things happening, including these growing numbers uniting behind the anti-establishment party. I mean, Maxime Bernier does not even have a seat. And some of his candidates are downright wonkadoodles, but his party is surging because homeless voters have found a place that offers them common ground. And so while people laugh at the People's Party they could very well end up defining the election that Trudeau can't. And that is, a lot of Canadians are simply pissed off and fed up with Canada's political landscape. And they aren't just going to go away. And so then what? Whoever gets the win on September 20th is the one who's going to have to clean up this mess. And so to Mr. Trudeau, I'd say... Stop using vaccines as a weapon because you're doing a lot of damage that is not going to be done, you know, undone anytime soon.
2: I condemn every kind of violence and I'm doing that and uh, I will always do it. But also, people have the right to express themselves peacefully. That's the most important.
1: There you go. That is Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party. He himself, by the way, got egged last week by someone who uh, got his little camera out and wanted to take a viral moment. So he, too, has been a target of this. And I think, you know, those brushing his supporters off as just some kind of fringe group of fanatics are, are doing so at their own risk. You know, the prime minister, that they're calling them mobs. Um, but it's not true. I mean, it's not true just like Aaron O'Toole's not behind these protests because the, the noise isn't helping O'Toole. It could help Mr. Trudeau because he kind of can paint himself as the victim here. But these crowds are not just anti-vaxxers. All sorts of Canadians are showing up to these things. You know, there are those who simply hate Trudeau. There are those who are just fed up. They're angry. And then there are those who really do want Maxime Bernier and see him as, you know, the vessel and the outsider that will fight for them. And it seems that the numbers are growing. A number of Canadians just don't want what the... Ottawa politicians are selling because they don't trust them. And so now we're starting to see the People's Party number grow. And um, in the next couple of weeks, it'll be interesting to see if, in fact, Maxime Bernier can get enough support to maybe get a seat, maybe represent these voices. But what are the voices sending? Because they are sending a message. John Wright is executive vice president at Maru Public Opinion over at the Maru Group. He joins us now. Good to have you, John.
0: Great to be with you, Alex.
1: I know that it is an incredibly busy time for you, and I've been watching your tweets because you are really one of the very few, if the only one, uh, who is, as a pollster, digging into what is driving these outsider voices to, to the People's Party. What is giving them momentum right now?
0: Well, I think we can guess at a few things, but then we can look at some of the other coincidental numbers. So Mm -hmm. let's step back a bit. In the last election campaign, the People's Party of Canada um, got about a half a percent worth of the vote. And we really haven't seen much change in that up until July of this year. But beginning around the second week of August, it started to pick up in a very significant way. And it escalated particularly after about August the, 10, August the 17th. It came on my radar screen, and I kind of looked at it. Today, we're sitting at between 5 and 7% support. I'm not sure those people will even go out and vote because of the infrastructure that the party is not there. But it coincides right. with one thing, and that is the imposition of passports. Quebec yeah. started implementing it announced it on August the 10th. And that's where we start to see movement. And then on some of the other polling, I've just finished today and got in tonight, and I'm not all the way through, but directionally, a lot of people in who are joining here are across the country. They're in all age groups, they're in all demographics, all you know, education areas. It's not like they're coming from one major part of the country and they're not just on one in one grouping. I think what's happening here is that. When the passports came into effect or they're coming into effect, they deprive the liberty of people. I mean, it is the state which is saying if you're not vaccinated and in, you know, a municipal or federal or provincial government, then you can't work here. There are people who fundamentally have a different belief system. We know that there's 16 percent of people across this country representing close to four and a half to five million people who are not going to get vaccinated. And now the state is imposing certain restrictions. On the one hand, you can say that they want to protect their workplaces and everybody else, and they're trying to make you know the, the leftovers go and get what they you know get vaccinated. On the other hand, these people are angry because they're being forced to do something they disbelieve in, that they're being excluded now from engaging in society, going to restaurants, going to a whole bunch of other places. And, and that has triggered, I think, something that Maxine Bernier said last week in Manitoba, and that is that He's, he's basically turning what was an anti-immigrant party into right. a pro-liberty party and the tyranny of government exercising it on these people that's what i think i'm seeing here in all the polling that i'm doing that these people are are against the passport a large majority of them but they're also be joining other groups of people who are angry at other things in society because they don't have a voice so yeah it may you know i i think that this is something that unless we figure out a way to address the implications of the passport and the removal of of people's rights as they see it, I think we're going to continue to see an escalation of this party. You use the right word. It's a vessel. That's what this is. And people are finding a way into it.
1: Yeah, because for, for, you know, far too long, I think, that it's been assumed that it's just the far right who are gravitating to Maxime Bernier. And so that's why why your information and, and polling really kind of stuck out to me. It is he's gaining traction with all sorts of different people from all sorts of different political stripes. You know, he does not. Uh, Mr. Bernier, have a role in the leader's debate. He's polling higher right now than the Green Party. And I think a lot of people um, uh, are right to say, like, he should be there. He should actually be part well, of this debate, maybe more so than the block leader, who's really only serving Quebec. Let me let me suggest a couple of things. First
0: of all, when they make decisions on where to go into voting, he was nowhere near eligible in yeah. terms of either having a seat or numbers. Number two is and Maxine Bernier is picking and choosing his media opportunities. I think he realizes what he's getting and wants to keep his powder dry. So I would think he's quite fine with where he is right now. And going forward, you know, he'll start to put something together. But let me say something for your listeners. I've been doing polling now for 30 years. I have everybody in every party who has, at one point in time called me, you know, um, (laughs) a show for somebody else like every party. I mean, mine was the first poll that identified Bob Ray was going to take over in Ontario. So let's put the I'm not some kook from the side who's, you know, putting something out there. Here's what I see. And that is I see a group of people who are many ways, shunned by media. I mean, they're not being reported on. There was a a protest in Hamilton tonight, this afternoon at a hospital, and not Mm -hmm. one single interview was done with the people who were protesting to find out why they were there. These people, in many ways, are against the medical establishment who are on side with those who are with the passports and putting barriers in place. And I'm seeing that now in the numbers. I'm pointing to my screen on the left here. I'm seeing that in the numbers that I'm getting in tonight. So they can't be labelled you know, uh, protégés of Donald Trump, only a third right. of them are They, you know, 7% of them are into QAnon. I mean, it's they're not right-wing people on that side of the fence, but what they are all about and what I think Maxine Bernier is talking about, because he, he talks about at certain times in our lifetime, tyranny deserves revolution. He uses those terms. Yeah, He uses revolution and he's capturing not a bunch of wackos, but he's capturing, you know, people who or just like the people next door or professionals in our offices that you don't see who are now starting to come together with him.
1: Yeah. And for those who are now protesting, um, there are many who will quietly go and park their vote with him happily because they, they just won't tell anybody about it. So he actually may may do better uh, come Election Day, depending on, on what we see in the next week and a half. And so does your polling suggest to you that Maxime Bernier will at least capitalize on some of this? Will he have some kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, will he get a seat, a couple of seats in the House? Will this produce results? No, no,
0: no, I don't, I don't believe so at all. And I actually, I don't think that's the end game here. I think the end game when suddenly this comes about you is to, is to reach out. There's no manifesto for this group. There's no organization. They have some T-shirts. They've got some placards and some signs. Uh, can you imagine having you know, just 300,000 people with you one moment and then having 4.4 million potentially with you the next? I mean, you're not going to yeah. go into an election campaign. W- what this is is more than a political statement. This is actually a movement against being cornered. And it's it's enjoining a lot of other angered people who believe that government, you know, keep your hands off my land, all of that sort of stuff. These people are now giving them a boost. So Maxime Bernier is playing this very carefully. First of all, he's changed his rhetoric to match the new incomers who, when you look at the, um, the video from Manitoba, where he's talking to thousands of people, mm-hmm. they're, they're like families having hot dogs and they look just like you and me. And they're there and he's talking to them. He's adjusting his rhetoric for his new audience. He's refusing to do a lot of interviews. The fact of the matter is he's got organization to do. I don't think it's this election, but I tell you, in the next 18 months, if we're back at this again, you're going to see a very different organized party.
1: Right. And so, you know. What should then the politicians be taking away from this? Because September 20th is going to come. We're going to vote. But these people, the millions you talk about are not going to go away. And they've just been called idiots and mobs and all these terrible names for the last, you know, few weeks. I mean, it's one thing to weaponize an issue to gain political points, John, but there is a collateral damage that someone on September 21st is going to have to lead and govern. And, and that <laughs> they got to clean this mess up. I think it's bigger than that. And,
0: and you know, they, they say that throwing rocks at the prime minister and doing these things is un-Canadian. Well, let me ask you a question. Is Canadian saying to 16% of people in this country who have a belief system that, you know, I'm double vaxxed and I'll get my booster and I've done everything right. And I resent people taking up spaces in hospitals, all that sort of stuff. But I can't take four and a half million people and basically say, you're out of work. You can't right. come yeah. here. You can't do that. And have them just sit there politely and say, thanks so much. Goodbye. We're talking about families. We're talking about people who have a belief system. And if the politicians and the media who are not reporting this, if I mean, again, I'm not some wacko. I don't see this being reported on very much. And even interviews taking place, because I think there's a, a, a group of people who basically say, look, we don't want to encourage this. You know, we don't mm-hmm. want to show 50,000 people in the streets of Montreal going against this. But they see it as a conspiracy. They see, you know, the medical establishment is keeping their voices out of the debate. I'm seeing this as a combustible thing. I don't know what happens when you throw somebody out of work because of this. But I know that in other countries, they throw rocks first in windows and then do other things next. And it turns anger into other things. And I'm not suggesting that this whole movement is like this, but it can be channeled in a way That politicians have never recognized before, and the role of politicians is to try and diffuse this. I'm not sure we're set up to diffuse this. I mean, the only other way to diffuse it is to recognize that you know passports and all this sort of stuff are inflaming the situation, and COVID's going to be around for a long time. The fact of the matter is, it's fusing together a movement, not simply a party, and I don't know where that's going to go because I think we're going to have passports and COVID around for a while. So. It's it's the beginning, Alex. I think you're picking up on it. I've picked it up in real numbers. I think there are a few other people seeing this this form, but I don't think it's being talked about or personalized in terms of what it could mean outside of just Maxine Bernier. I think yeah. something's happening, and and it's we're witnessing the beginnings of something.
1: Yeah, and we owe it uh, to tell the whole story and not just the parts that are convenient for us because, therefore, otherwise, it's it's, uh, it's an untold story. John, we'll keep an eye on it. I really appreciate your insight into yep. this, and I find it fascinating what you're learning. Mr. Bernier will be on with me tomorrow night, so we'll see what he has to say, and I'll put some of these uh, issues to him. But uh, appreciate it. We'll see where it goes.
0: Thanks so much for all
1: your time. That is uh, John Wright. So he does all the Maru Blue polling. Um, there's very few pollsters that I watch he is one of them obviously ipsus with uh, is the other um and they've got some fascinating numbers of camping re- there's only a few of them that i really watch and take stock of and so i think john's uh onto something here and it's pretty interesting to watch unfold all right, it's that time in the show that everyone loves. It's when we bring in our friends over at Black Locks Reporter because, of course, they dig up all a lot of the juicy dirt that often gets buried underneath the headlines, but it really shouldn't because it is the consequential political news. No one doing it better, of course, than our friend Tom Korski, who is the managing editor of Black Locks Reporter. He joins us now. Good to have you back, Tom.
3: Thank you, Alex.
1: Or maybe I should say it's good for me to be back. Um, uh, you watching the debates today and tomorrow, and I think a lot of the people questioning uh, should Mr. Bernier um, be on this uh, political debate. I mean, he's got higher polling numbers right now than the Green Party, and certainly, I mean, it makes more sense federally to have a Bernier at these debates rather than, let's say, the Bloc Québécois. Well, where are you on this?
3: Uh, why not? Come one, come all. They have representation in Parliament in the past, certainly in the uh, last Parliament. And they're polling pretty decently. He's drawing significant crowds. Uh, bigger crowds than some other party leaders who will be there tonight. You know, Alex, the Debates Commission was created by Cabinet. It was supposed to make everything better and smoother, and it did not make things better, and it did not make things go more smoothly. Before, in olden days, private broadcasters used to handle these debates. Everything worked out fine. The Debates Commission has now been successfully sued twice for uh, running a media blacklist. Can't do that, two federal judges have said. They put, uh, though they're supposed to be Nonpartisan. They put Craig Kielberger of We Charity Fame, a Liberal Party donor, on their board. Mm -hmm. And they awarded a sole source contract to a lobby group, Green Pack, that has endorsed mainly Liberal and New Democrat candidates. They have a lot to answer for. And um, there's questions about the formatting. There's questions about their, forgive me, core competence. Really, they can't get rid of this commission fast enough, in my opinion. Just give it back to the broadcasters.
1: Yeah, no kidding. I, I tend to agree with you. And I'm going to talk about it with uh, one of my ne- next guests about this foreign policy. Again, no foreign policy in this debate. And we both know that it should be on this debate because this is a huge weakness for Trudeau. And it's, I have to think, this board, which is very liberal friendly, that made sure that this would not be an issue that they had to touch.
3: No, it's inexplicable. I mean, the, the fall of Kabul, yeah. it, it, it sounds like a, a pretty significant outbreak of foreign news. And it's inexplicable
1: or the two Michaels, or China, or, or, or. All right, let us dig into what you guys have been digging into. I think this is a, a bit of a a slow burn, but it, it begs the question, because, you know, we went 16 months, Tom, never a day missed, with these, you know, um, daily updates from Dr. Tan about all the scariness, the, the threat of COVID, you know, the, the wave after wave after wave, we can't leave our house, we can't do anything. We haven't seen a daily update at all during this election. Nothing, not a word, even though we're in wave four and there are all this, you know, ominous news about the, you know, the the next wave. Um, and then we find out that not only did the uh, federal scientists refuse to speak with Canada's doctors on pandemic planning. So it's not just the public that they're not talking to. They're not even talking to China or Canada's doctors on pandemic planning. And so can you unbreak this story that was kind of, um, rolled out by the Canadian Medical Association that you guys dug up?
3: Yeah, absolutely. This is the uh, CMA journal uh, published by doctors for doctors, peer reviewed periodical, pretty scientific. They had asked since July for a time with members of National Vaccine advisory panel for pretty fundamental information. Are we going to need more booster shots? Are there going to have to be vaccinations for children under 12 currently not recommended? Mm-hmm. And they were told to drop dead. No, no time for you. Said the public health agency, you check back after Thanksgiving. That would be after the election. Then they asked to speak to Dr. Tan, chief public health officer. Dropped dead, they were told. You may get an interview, but not right now because of the election, quote, unquote, the CMA Journal quoted the Department of Health. You know, when Harper did this, it was called a a press gag, gagging scientists and people set their hair on fire. This is unacceptable, Alex. And in fact, we asked Dr. Tim, what do you care if there's an election on? This is scientists refusing to talk to the nation's foremost medical authority, the Canadian Medical Association, about a medical Emergency? Are you kidding me? That's what they did.
2: I mean,
1: color me stupid, but I thought public health actually served the public. I mean, that's their uh, job, and I kind of say uh, that in uh, jest, but I mean, science. they are to serve uh, uh, the public.
3: Yeah, it's all about science uh, until until there's an election, and then it yeah. gets really political. I what, what can I tell you? You know, listen. You don't get to be chief public health officer if you don't have political skills. Uh, presumably, Dr. Tam got her appointment not merely on the basis of her resume. Let's just put the cards on the table. It doesn't matter if you're chief of police. I never met a chief of police who wasn't a good politician. Don't fool yourself. This is not meritocracy. So, but I've Dr. met, but Dr. I've met many
1: police police chiefs who are not great politicians or police chiefs. So, I mean, there's also well, that there too. <laughs>
3: <laughs> point, point <taken. laughs>
1: but when we talk about and you see these crowds of, you know, growing people who have such a mistrusting government, you see like the anger across this country. It's crap like this. If people think that their their health is being politicized or that politicians are playing games with it, it's this kind of garbage where you've got like political maneuvering happening behind the scenes for political gain.
3: Well, ex- just remember this. Any time you hear any public office holder say, no, no, it's not like that. This is pure science. Mm-hmm. This is like stainless steel robots uh, tell us what to do. Uh, th- there's no influence here. There's no attempt to seek favor. That's a, that's a, no matter how thin you slice it, that's a bunch of baloney. Someone told TAM to knock it off, and someone told them, you're not talking to the Canadian Med- Medical Association, and they didn't. It was outrageous.
1: Yeah. Well, nonetheless, I'm sure they'll start right back up September 21st when we're right in the thick of it. Um, I think this is interesting because now Prime Minister... Justin Trudeau, the leader, um, who will hope to be Prime Minister again, he told reporters that uh, they will not be taxing our homes with a capital gains tax, even though they did give a $250,000 grant to the CHMC, which was looking into this kind of policy. And this report will come out any day, but this is research, Tom, that was being done to examine tax and other public finance policy opportunities to level the so-called playing field. And so you got Trudeau on the campaign trail saying, no, 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 we're not going to ca- you know tax your homes or anything else. Um, but then you've got this research paper. Where should we be in believing this story one way or another?
3: A cabinet has said uh, for years they will never tax home equity because that would be wrong. And yet there's always this whisper about taxing home equity, followed yeah. by really passionate denials. In this case, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Uh, gave that quarter million dollar grant to pro-tax researchers to get a tax on a a research paper on whether to tax home equity. Everybody knows. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what was involved in this and what CMHC paid and what they wanted to hear. What's interesting is the prime minister put that on the table. That's the most definitive statement he's ever made. Never. Never. Never will mm-hmm. we tax home equity. That would be wrong, he said. His last finance minister, Bill Morneau, said the same thing in 2020 when it got a little hot in the House of Commons. He said we will never, it, ever in the future, tax home equity. But it always seems to stick around, Alex. Look, at mm-hmm. the, they've got to get the money from somewhere, but they know that the day they go to tax home equity, oh, wait for it.
1: Oh yeah, no question about it. Where there's smoke, there's definitely fire. Don't have a lot of time, but I, and I, and it's a serious issue, but I could not help but like laughing when I read this. So the Department of National Defense is going to launch this marketing campaign next month, promising this purpose and empowerment campaign because they want women to enlist in the Canadian Armed Forces. And of course, like, w- sorry, Tom, they're launching a commercial to try to get women to look at other, co- you know, career choices and look to the military. Why don't they clean up the military before they launch the campaign?
3: Yeah, this would be for all the women who don't listen to the radio or read newspapers and (laughs) have no internet access. Or
1: have no (laughs) brains
3: And missed all the sex scandals in the last three months, including criminal charges of witness tampering against the former commander of the Canadian Armed Forces involved in an ongoing sex scandal. The irony is noted. They have had a target to increase women's representation in the Army, Navy, and Air Force for many years. They keep missing it. And they wonder why.
1: Yeah. Gee, I can't imagine. It'd be so rewarding to have a career there. No one will believe you. No one's got your back. Nonetheless. All right. Well, we'll see if that campaign launches or uh, if it's dead on arrival. Always appreciate your time, Tom. I know you're busy these days, so always uh, love talking to you.
3: My pleasure. Thanks, Alex.
1: That is Tom Korski, managing editor of Black Locks Reporter. And a lot of people ask me, How, where do I get this? Look, it's subscription-based. They earn every cent of it. They give you all your money's worth. And it is absolutely worth the subscription because you get the goods.
4: They've said that they will let people with travel documents freely depart. We will hold them to that.
3: So will dozens of other countries. The international community is watching to see if the Taliban will live up to their commitments.
1: Well, that is the voice of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken talking about the ongoing negotiations with the Taliban, which are refusing to let several charter flights carrying Americans and Western allies on board and who are desperately trying to leave the country. And so call me shocked that the Taliban is apparently acting like a terror group. But I am shocked that this issue isn't even an issue anymore. I mean, we're in the middle of an election. Afghanistan is on fire. Hundreds of Canadians are stuck there because of the Trudeau government's failure to act sooner. And Justin Trudeau's promised they're working to get people out. But we don't have the negotiating power of the U.S. We don't have any people on the ground there. And clearly the Taliban's not going anywhere. And the situation on the ground is being described as desperate with Afghans in hiding. They say food, money, gas, all those things are running out. And so is time. So why isn't Trudeau being challenged to answer how he is going to actually get people out. Why isn't he being challenged more on this massive foreign policy, um, foreign affairs policy failure? I mean, this is not even an issue in the leaders debate. How is that possible? Shuvoy Majumdar is a Monk Senior Fellow of Foreign Policy at Macdonald Laurier Institute. He's also the former Director of Policy to Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister under Stephen Harper's government. Good to have you, Shuv. Great to be back. You know, th- this issue, um, you know, sparked up on day one of this election. And it, and it almost got doused out as quickly when really, if this were, I think, under a different government, let's say a conservative government, the questions would be every single day, what are you going to do about Afghanistan? And, and we're not even talking about it. Why?
4: That's a great question. You know, in 2015, I, I still have uh, the battle scars of the questions <laughs> that arose around uh, refugees in Europe after the horrific images of Alain Cordy Right. The Turkish boy being their Kurdish boy being washed up on a Turkish beach uh, mm-hmm. dominated headlines. And that that became a defining issue for the election because the opposition party led by Justin Trudeau principally was able to define um, that image as a moniker for so-called conservative heartlessness. It became politics in right. the domestic context and it abused the issue. It abused the refugees that were involved and it abused the government, including the civil service that had done. Incredible work to try and bring as many of those refugees to Canada successfully, mm. and you know I, I wonder why that hasn't happened in this election. Um, it's not just Afghanistan and uh, America's reckless withdrawal; it's also the rise of China and what it means for us in our pandemic management, given that the right. pandemic or- originated in China. Our economic supply chains and our recovery—it's—it's um, it's, I think tragic. I, a colleague of mine, a friend, and a former colleague. Sean Spear
2: um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: has written about how federal parties tend to be really focused on provincial jurisdiction (laughs) instead of what is actual federal responsibility and um, navigating world disruptions and Canada's interests are are clearly a federal responsibility. And I think that debate is being grossly underserved.
1: Well, it's not even happening. I mean, it's not going to be part of the leader's debate tonight or uh, even tomorrow night. And foreign policy is just something that the Trudeau government, has not had uh, great success at be it whether we're talking afghanistan the two michaels china this is an area he is very vulnerable vulnerable in and i'm I'm, you know sure that there were you know reasons that it didn't get on maybe because they stacked the board full of um you know friendly liberal you know people but this is not going to be again for the second election a, a debate topic And there are ramifications for all of these big issues and and while foreign policy as you know doesn't necessarily uh play high in an election i mean we have some very very big issues because what's happening in afghanistan now is only going to get worse
4: it is and foreign policy look i i can i can concede why canadians may not consider foreign policy to be a preeminent issue in their day-to-day lives and in their own Mm -hmm. recovery from a, a grueling couple of years Um, You know, principally, Canada's foreign policy, if you look at it from an economic prism, is 80% trade with the United States. The United States constitutes uh, 80% of our international trade and over 100% of our national security. And so we tend not to think about the gravity of threats to our interests and our values around the world the way that, you know, a country like Australia might, that is surrounded in a dangerous neighborhood and has to deal with with China on a day-to-day basis, Um, And so we've become very comfortable, I think, as a country in parochial issues. But I think what China is proving is that the protection of our geography and what America is proving through Biden's decisions on Afghanistan that have also left Canadians up in the air uh, is that we actually have to start maturing as a country and asserting our interests with a lot more confidence than we have in the past, because if we don't, Um, What we're seeing happen to the Canadians abandoned in Afghanistan um, is just the beginning of what is what is to come.
1: Right. But but I think Canadians are underestimated by that messaging because polling shows in the last two to three years that um, Canadians, by and large, in huge numbers, do not support the relationship we have with China. They want to see a change in direction in that. And they are very angry about the mishandling of Afghan, um, you know. And so these are issues I do think Canadians care about. And and frankly, um, yeah, you know, the bottom line is these are all going to have. You know, whether it's China or Afghanistan, what's going on in the middle, all of these are very consequential to our national, you know, uh, interests over the Absolutely. next few years. And, and I, again, all we're talking about is vaccine mandates, which, again, provincial jurisdiction, and the prime minister could have done something about you know, 12 months ago if he was that concerned.
4: Well, and politically silence the public health agency of Canada from actually commenting during an election campaign, which is atrocious in its own right. But when look, look, when Canadians are asked about what they think about the world, they have strong views and they have strong values. They give clear direction to the elected government of the day. And it is worth paying attention to. But when ranked against other priorities, I think the majority of Canadians are deeply economically uncertain about what is to come. Um, they're keen to return to work. They're keen to have you know, prudent management in in our national economic recovery that is consistent with our pandemic measurement measures. But what I think Canadians have yet to understand is the connectivity that our economic recovery has to global events and how China's rise in and its disruption in places as far away as in Afghanistan is directly connected to the things we care about and the jobs we're going to need. And until that is translated successfully, I think that you know, foreign policy will be seen as something that the national government, the federal government should not, you know, shouldn't be held accountable for, even though it certainly ought to be uh, increasingly mm-hmm. in this election and ones to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, because I think what's clear is, uh, you know, the Taliban is not going anywhere, but they're not even being challenged. I find it bizarre, Shu, that it's just kind of become accepted that they are now the government. Afghanistan has you know, become theirs. Um, and, it, and it's like there's not going to be any ramifications for this down the road. I mean, like what? They're, they're just going to be recognized all of a sudden as a government and life goes on. I mean, there are going to be well, listen,
4: Yeah. And thank you for the opportunity to let me speak to this a little bit. As you know, I, I lived and worked in Afghanistan for uh, a number of years and have been following and tracking our country carefully. And I think there's some important facts about Afghanistan that the Canadians should understand. The first is the Taliban are a creation of Pakistan from the 1990s. Yeah down to having their name focus group. Pakistan has been deploying the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Haqqani group and other terror groups inside Afghanistan as a means to create instability um, and to have terror armies that they can be deployed against India and other South Asian partners, um, our South Asian partners. They've been using those terror proxies um, to murder and attack our own forces in Kandahar, while at the same time receiving our own military, economic, and development assistance. But even more interestingly is how Pakistan over the last several years has become a client state of China's. Because for China, Afghanistan is a piece of the puzzle that links from Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran into Central Asia, the Persian Gulf, and the Arabian Sea. This is a long-term geoeconomic project of the People's Republic of China. And just watch over the next couple of weeks, the kinds of relationship that the Taliban and Pakistan will have with China, where they will be silent about the genocide of Uyghur Muslims in China and robust about the abuse of their purported allegations of the abuse of Muslims elsewhere. So it's a it's a really fascinating theater. But don't don't for a minute think that the Taliban are anything but a proxy of Pakistan and that the accountability that needs to be exercised here is indeed on Pakistan
1: yeah it's just unfortunate that uh, we will not have those conversations. and certainly, um, you know those looking to bring in um, new leadership or look at the current leadership will not get any accountability um, or any kind of real uh, context as to who will do what. and we we both know that that the Trudeau government or the O'Toole or or drug they all have very different ways of dealing with foreign policy issues. and I just think that we are um, lesser uh, for not having no. those conversations. I, I, I-
4: I wish for the sake of the military families that have served and paid the ultimate sacrifice, 168 mm-hmm. Canadians and and their and their extended families. I wish for their sake that we actually had a better discussion around why that campaign has been meaningful and mm-hmm. what we must do to continue to honor the sacrifice that's been made.
1: Yeah, 100 percent agree with you. All right. Well, we'll see uh, if uh, O'Toole can get any of these issues onto the table in the next couple of days, because this is his uh, strength that he can play to. And uh, it is a, a big weakness for the Trudeau government. So appreciate you chatting with me, Shu. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. You, of course, can listen live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.